The media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. I have a real treat for listeners today. You may have noticed that in my America Out Loud articles over the past three weeks, I've introduced a group called the Right Climate Stuff. They are retired and highly experienced NASA engineers and scientists who have assessed the state of today's climate change science. Their academic training and experience working in America's space program required expertise in a lot of fields. That would include physics, chemistry, geology, meteorology, biology, data analysis interpretation, and complex systems modeling. All of these are very applicable to assessing the state of today's climate science. Two of the people from this fine group are my guests today. The first is former NASA mechanical engineer and current chairman of the Right Climate Stuff, Jim Peacock. Between 1958 and 1962, Jim was a U.S. Air Force lieutenant working with nuclear weapons on fighter bombers. During his 21-year career as a design engineer with NASA, his assignments included Apollo command module systems design, mission requirements, flight planning and mission operations and astronaut training, engineer for Apollo 11, 13 and 15. Wow. <laughs> Jim also worked on Skylab and the space shuttle. My second guest is former NASA mechanical engineer Tom Moser, the originator of the climate right stuff. Tom was a subsystem manager for the Apollo command module structure and launch escape system. He later became head of structural design in the structures and mechanics division for the space shuttle and then director of engineering. Tom finally became deputy associate administrator for the office of spaceflight and later the Deputy Associate Administrator and Program Director for the Space Station. <laughs> Tom will be a speaker on the Right Climate Stuff's panel at the 15th International Conference on Climate Change organized by the Heartland Institute in Orlando from February 23rd to 25th. So welcome to the show, Jim and Tom. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, great. I'd like to start off with Tom Moser. If you could describe the formation and the purpose of the climate right stuff. Oh. Well, the, the right climate stuff was uh, a term that Dr. Harold Drawn uh, came up with, and it began with, um, and, and I, cut me off if I go too long on this, okay? There's yes, the, I live in the Texas Hill Country, and there's a, a group of NASA retirees that live in this area, which is near San Antonio. And um, we got together uh, one time in my house, and there were probably about 30 or 40 of us there. And we had a speaker by the name of Leighton Stewart, and he oh, yeah. had written the book, Fire, Ice, and Paradise. And so he spoke to us. And so at that meeting, I challenged some of my fellow colleagues there to start looking seriously at climate change. And the reason I got interested in it in the late... 1980s, when I was in Washington, D.C., the chief scientist of NASA, Dr. Lynn Fisk was his name. Uh, I asked him one day, tell me about all this global warming stuff. You know, I'm not I'm not sure I believe it or disbelieve it. Help me understand it. He said, let me give you some examples. So he showed me some of the data from ice cores out of the Arctic and Antarctic. And I can't remember which it was 
Arctic or Antarctic, which, which cataloged and captured the atmosphere every single year for thousands of years. And you could determine what the carbon dioxide content was, what the other content of the atmosphere was, even what the temperature was because of the variations in the strata of those cores. So he convinced me, along with some additional research, that climate change, the, the truth about climate change was not really being told accurately. So that, that was the formation in the beginning, and I think Jim is 2011, if I'm correct, of the right climate stuff. And it's been a very active organization with, as you described, Tom, uh, a bunch of engineers, scientists of various disciplines involved in looking at this thing only, only with the idea of, in God we trust, everybody else bring data. So yeah. we don't look, we don't do uh, highly theoretical models and analyzes the atmosphere and the temperature. It's a very complex set of uh, events and elements. So what we do is basically look at empirical data. And so that that's the, I think that answers your question. I think it's the basis of the right climate stuff. Yeah, exactly. And for our younger listeners, the right stuff, of course, was the Mercury astronaut. So the, a bit of a takeoff on that particular. Did you folks ever actually meet any of the Mercury astronauts? Oh, we not only met them, we knew them. Oh, is that right? Oh, wow. <laughs> what about John Glenn? Did you meet John Glenn? Absolutely. <laughs> go ahead, Tom. You know, where we, we was at the, I'm going to go into a little bit more depth than you want there. Being in the Clear Lake area where the, man, the was the manned spacecraft center at that time, uh, it wasn't even built when I got there in 63. So we were in a remote part of the world, okay? We were far, we were, you know, 30, 40 miles away from Houston, and there was nothing there. There were no grocery stores, there were no nothing. But we had a mission, okay, that the president said, you know, put a man on the moon, blah, 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 okay? So we were about to do that. So we all lived and worked together. The astronauts, the engineer, mission control, everybody's a very small, close-knit community. Wow. Um, I would I would add one thing to that and tell me to shut up when I need to. But no, I think I think it was an experience that that probably certainly in our lifetime we'll never experience again because we had a huge demand. Jim worked all the time, I worked all the time, our families suffered because we were working the whole time, but we were very isolated. The only other place that I know that could happen that that, that happened was in the development of the atomic bomb. Mm -hmm. Same kind of high-tech challenge. It was critically important to accomplish the mission, but yet we could talk about our stuff and they couldn't talk about theirs. So we had a little advantage over those that, that community that developed uh, the atomic bomb. Yeah, I got the impression from watching media coverage that people like John Glenn were truly nice guys. Did you find that? Yeah, sure, I did. Uh, actually, all the astronauts, I knew most of them that uh, up to uh, the beginning of the uh, the shuttle flights. Yeah. And uh, they were all tremendous. One, one or two of them were kind of 
rough and hard to deal with, but they were absolutely gentlemen, very professional. They were almost all of them fighter pilots. Yeah. They were used to doing things on their own. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I used to, I, I've read virtually all the astronauts books, you know, and uh, Neil Armstrong, I used to get a kick out of him because he would say he didn't want to waste heartbeats out jogging, <laughs> you know, but man, he was a cool yeah. character. Yeah. Tom, I heard him say that one time I was at a little airstrip over where, near where Jim and I lived and um, Neil Armstrong was pushing a glider out of the, out of the hangar. He was going to go for gliding. He yeah. had a he had a can of beer in his hip pocket, okay. <laughs> and I said, because I I like Jim, I'd seen a lot of the astronauts staying in physical condition and all that. And I said, Neil, because Neil lived around the corner from it. Said Neil, what what are you doing with that beer? And why don't I see you out running? And he said the exact same thing. He just <laughs> had so many heartbeats he wasn't going to waste it running. Yeah. So. Yeah, so, amazing, amazing characters. So, Jim, what do you consider the most important product of the right climate stuff? Well, uh, the solution to the question of whether or not CO2 is controlling the climate or, or not. Yeah. And the uh, people that ran the climate models had about 20 variables, and some of them they don't know, didn't know how to define and some of them, they didn't know what the, the inter, interrelations uh, between the various things. And uh, to do a, an accurate model analysis, you've got to have all your inputs correct. Right. Garbage in equals garbage out. So uh, Hal Dwyer, our first uh, chairman, decided to uh, just choose the two variables that actually we're concerned with, CO2 and the, the measured temperature. And he plotted these against each other all the way from uh, 1856 when we started using fossil fuels, locomotives, later on cars and this sort of thing. And uh, he, he did an analysis that proved that the amount of warming that CO2 can do until the end of the century was only one degree centigrade. Oh, wow. <laughs> and one degree, what a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're spending a million dollars a day, hard-earned money, on a, some that you can't, you can't even detect. You know, if, I, if you walk from one room in your house to the other, it's degree of centigrade of uh, difference, you probably won't even feel it. So how, how in the world can that create tornadoes, hurricanes, forest <laughs> fires, control the sea level? It's a bunch of crap, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's fine. You know, I have a question here. One analogy that I use to show how, in reality, the global temperature doesn't even really matter is if half the world got five degrees warmer and half the world got five degrees colder, the average would stay the same, yet that would be a catastrophe. So does the global temperature really matter that much or is it more a matter of what happens in a region? Please, what sir. you just described is weather, not climate. Yeah, I guess you're right. Okay, yeah, yeah, weather, yeah. weather changes all the time and it, it transfer heat from one place to another 
and that causes winds and that causes the the oceans to heat that causes all kinds of things so that's yeah. that's that's weather that's not climate yeah you know? I, I get i get the impression that we've become as a society kind of weather hypochondriac you know like here in canada they always make it look colder than it really is by talking about wind chill and in the summer they make it seem hotter than it is <laughs> talking about humidex when i was growing up and i'm only 69 so it wasn't that long ago we never did that i mean we looked at the real temperature so i mean do you think tom that we've become kind of weather hypochondriac <laughs> i i think i think so um i mean knowing what the weather is locally where you are is is really important and probably where you are is critically important okay yeah. not yeah. not so much where jim and i are down here basking in you know 60 to 65 degree weather today uh so it, it's it's critically important to a lot of people in a lot of industry yeah weather yeah. and you know what i think the weather predictors people are really good the weather people yeah yeah, yeah. They've been improving you know, quite a bit over over the years yeah. Well, you know, for us, you're right here in Canada. Just a few days ago, it was minus 31 Celsius. God. And I was carrying my cell phone talking to somebody and it suddenly stopped. And I got home and I tried to turn it on. I tried to charge it. And I got this little indicator from Galaxy, you know, the <laughs> Galaxy S8 uh, saying it was too cold to even charge, let alone operate. So, I mean, <laughs> our, we're going to be headed for that with our electric cars. You go out in the morning and Nope, you can't charge it. You can't start it. Like, duh. <laughs> so, Tom, can you tell me, here's a kind of naive question, but I think it's important to ask. Why is it important to properly assess the science relied on by the UN and the U.S. government? I think it's critically important because looking at what they predict compared to actual data indicates that they're really off in their analysis. And it's mm -hmm. usually off getting a lot hotter, warmer than it really is. And it's and inaccurate predictions like that can cause irresponsible and devastating effects that will adversely affect everybody on earth. Mm -hmm. So when you look at that and you see the claims associated with it and the claims associated with a few degrees increase in temperature, it's to me, okay, it's important to say, no, that's really not accurate when you look only at measured data. So that that's that's the reason. That's the big reason. And and then later on we can talk about it. But you have to ask why would they want to do that, and why mm -hmm. do they believe it when probably a lot of them don't even believe it's true. So. Well, yeah, I'm really glad that you folks are looking at the science because so many groups simply look at the impacts. They talk about, oh, incredible costs, and it's not fair that China has no limits and things like that. And it's interesting that Sally Balunas from Harvard University, whenever anybody would ask her that kind of question, she'd say, well, I don't even want to talk about whether it's fair about China going first or not first, because there is no climate crisis. So, I mean, Jim, it seems to me that the climate science that you guys are looking at it. I mean, surely that's the fundamental underlying issue. Well, that's the, the issue. We, we had to uh, do a, a, an accurate calculation. You know, when we were doing the, uh, the stuff at uh, NASA there for trying to get to the moon, we, uh, we did an analysis, a structural analysis or something, and we built it. 
yeah. out to the test lab and tested it. And then we got the idea of whether or not we were right or we were wrong. Mm-hmm. That's the, the only way that you can find a true solution mm-hmm. is to uh, do a test and take the data correctly. Yeah. And uh, decide whether this thing is going to work or not. So yeah. that's what we did with the climate change. We used empirical data, the two variables that count. Yeah. It's, it's just a very simple solution. Yeah, well, maybe, let me add something to that, too, on sure. pushback. I've had the, the opportunity here in the last few years to, to talk to probably 1,500 people plus and just got back from one of them, like I said, a while ago. And out of all the people I've talked to in multiple venues, I have yet for anybody to push back on what I said. Huh. Not a single one. I Good. published a, an editorial in the local paper here which is probably distributed to, you know, 100,000 people, something like that. I had one pushback, okay? So, and and this was a person that was offended, you know, that I'd even challenge it. And and so that's okay. You know, that's all right. I didn't didn't mind that. But I think, you know, when people, and like Jim's saying, when when you look, when people look at real facts, and I don't try to say it's a hoax, I say, Here's what I think is the truth. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's that's what the right climate stuff is saying. Here's what we think is the truth. If anybody has got anything different, bring it on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, I would think that even the left would want to kill the climate scare in the long run because it really sabotages so many of the causes that they say they hold dear, you know, like social justice, you know, increasing the cost of electricity going through the roof actually hurts the poor more than anybody or the cobalt mining in the Congo and all that kind of thing. I mean, surely an open-minded left winger would also oppose the climate scare. I've yet to meet an open-minded <laughs> left winger, <laughs> sir. Yeah, that's right. Maybe that's an oxymoron. Uh, <laughs> well, I think Jim yeah. hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really glad though that you folks are focusing on the science and I think more on our side have to be braver and do that. You know, that's really true. Now, now, Jim, we often hear that wind and solar power are now competitive with natural gas. But is this really true? I don't think so. Uh, I don't see how it could be. But uh, it's, a, it's a hard thing to calculate because uh, of all the unknown pieces of data that we have, you know, in my engineering profession, the most important factors to use to make a decision are the cost, performance, and weight, or schedule. And for energy, we have a pretty good information on performance and schedule, and weight doesn't matter. But the cost of the comparison is, is next to impossible because uh, I, I think that the people in the wind and uh, solar business would be able to sell their product if people really knew what it costs to, to make. We, we know that wind and solar is a lot more expensive than fossil fuels, but by how much? The only cost the consumer sees is on his home electric bill. Yeah. I checked mine and on a 2011 bill and a 2023 bill, 12 years apart, the cost was the same, 10 cents a kilowatt hour. 
And uh, as a consumer, I'm pretty happy, but I hear about incentives, taxes, some really weird bidding battles that go on when the wind doesn't blow and the sun don't shine. Yeah. And they're scrambling to get some of that fossil fuel uh, heat uh, eaten up. These costs are probably three or four times by 10 cents per kilowatt hour. In general, if public had uh, electric bills of uh, 1200 to 1600 instead of $400 a month, the argument would be over. Mm, right. We, uh, I think we need to push for our legislature to require the full cost of the electrical energy itemized on every consumer's bill. Yeah. Yeah, that would be good. Now, is there any receptiveness on the part of government to actually do that? We haven't gotten to that point, but we're, oh, okay. we're headed there. Yeah. So, so if your price is the same as it was 12 years ago, does that mean that the actual costs are hidden in our taxes and things like that? Yeah. You pay taxes. I got a business. I pay how much tax money do we pay? Thousands of dollars. Yeah. Um, and uh, and the incentives, the government incentives, uh, and all this money is uh, you know hidden. I, I I've been diligently looking for good sources. Recently, I got a uh, a report uh, from some guys over in Virginia that did what I call a cradle to the grave analysis, which is what it really costs. It looked pretty good, but uh, I'm looking at the number, at the answers, and they don't look right to me. Uh, uh-huh. I got to dig into that a little more to find out what the the real deal is. Well, do they include in the price of electricity that you actually pay the cost of transmission lines taking the power from very remote locations where the wind is gathered, you know, the energy is gathered? Do they actually include transmission costs in your bill? probably do because uh you know all the years before us it doesn't really matter what kind of energy you use to generate the electricity once it's on the wire it's on on a wire yeah yeah exactly well uh, did you did you see michael moore's film planet of the humans in which he showed that wind and solar power are probably the dirtiest energy sources on the planet when you look at how they're made yeah yeah, I've been reading some items about that, too. Yeah. That's why, that's why we, you know, from the cradle is, uh, you know, you, you dig all this stuff out of the earth and manufacture uh, all sorts of stuff. And uh, you use it for a few years, and then it crumbles and falls apart. And yeah. Now you got to get rid of it. The only way they can get rid of this stuff is to bury it. <laughs> cheapest, cheapest way of getting rid of it. Yeah, that's loud, lousy environmentally. <laughs> that's the cradle to the grave cost. And, yeah. Uh, there are very few analyses that are being done to determine that. I, here again, uh, the powers that be don't want it to be known what <laughs> well, I think there's a instinct, as you, you might have heard. I think there's a, a good uh, uh, analogy on that. It's, it's not so much cost, but it's uh, looked at, instead of dollars, it looks at carbon dioxide. 
in the production of various things. And I think it was Volkswagen that did the analysis and um, it looked at it at a electric vehicle versus a, a gasoline combustion powered vehicle. Okay. Uh -huh. And the, if you look at all of the energy that it takes to mine the material for the batteries, like a thousand pound battery, you have to excavate 500,000 pounds of earth. So a thousand pounds of battery with a 500 multiple in the negative, okay, to generate wow. enough to. So what does it take to move 500,000 pounds of earth material? It takes a lot of hydrocarbons, okay? A lot of fossil fuels. Then once you get that material out, you have to use a lot of acid to purify and get the cobalt and the other things out. So I think according to, to Volkswagen, if, if, if everything were compared from beginning, like Jim is saying, from very beginning to the end, an electric vehicle has to be used for 70,000 miles wow. before it breaks, breaks even, okay, on carbon dioxide. Wow. requirements. So you can, you can look at it up probably on whatever, but that's, that's the analysis. And it's, uh, you know, I think that there are so many costs associated as Jim was saying, if you really did a cradle to grave analysis on there and looked at, at the, not only the dollars, but the human aspects of producing all of this stuff, that it's going to, it's going to be huge. I mean, there's a, it's alleged. I don't know this factually. So right climate stuff hadn't gotten the date on it. But there's a lot of slave and child labor used, in, especially in Africa, to produce cobalt and some of the other things that, you know, it's back to what are what are people really trying to do? Are they trying to help people survive and, and, and prosper and flourish by giving them more energy? Or is they trying to make it so expensive they can't afford it? Well, I don't know what their intention is, but I think it's the latter. It's what's happening. So, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, for sure. We have to go for a break now. But Tom, when we get back, can you talk about um, the sorts of topics that you're presenting to the public? Sure. I, mean, I think that would be interesting to hear. And, and you know, the difficulty perhaps of explaining these complex concepts in layman's language. Okay. Yeah, okay. So we'll be right back after the break. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. 
boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a made-in-America climate plan a plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure, a plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com. It was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that said, lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Well, I'm back with Jim Peacock and Tom Moser with the Right Climate Stuff, a NASA group, the retired engineers who looked at the climate scare. They've also looked at a lot of energy things, and we're going to talk about that too. So, Tom, can you talk about what's happening with your particular talks to the public like what are you speaking about and you know how is it going well I, I guess the the title of my talks have been the truth about climate change and carbon dioxide you know mm-hmm. I used to say the the hoax or something like that that I decided to better to go positive on the thing yeah. and try to let people know what the truth is and it's a subject that I think is getting to have a lot more interest by a lot more people it's been mm-hmm. my experience. Uh, I was in New Mexico recently at uh, in, the, in the mountains, probably where Jim was with, with Irwin. And uh, I spoke to a group of people there, a couple hundred people. And, uh, and they didn't really promote the talk very well, the, the organization that was doing it. And they said, well, we don't think there will be that many people show up. So we're going to have a room with, you know, 50 or so people available. Well, it filled up way before it began. Anyway, a couple of hundred people showed up and the results of that was, would you please do that again? So that gives you an indication. People are truly interested. And I think the more that people hear about climate change and more and more people like Jim has been talking about are beginning to challenge these things. And I think, you know, authors of books and things like that have written about it. You've read about it. And I think the people are becoming more aware and they're not buying this uh, untruth. I'll stick with truth. So when I talk to the people, I try to sort of lay the groundwork of, you know, who I am and why I'm trying, why I'm even interested in doing this. But I make the point that, that 
of seven things. The number one, and then I, I support all these seven things with a set of facts, a set of data. The global temperature and carbon dioxide levels are cyclical. They've been going on for hundreds of millions of years. So I show them a graph, okay? This, this goes back 600 million years and it shows the, the cyclical effect or characteristic of temperature and carbon dioxide. Yeah, it has a band of uncertainty, but you know, that 600 million years ago, it was estimated carbon dioxide was 7,000 parts per million. Seven. Right now, 7,000. <laughs> so right now we're a little bit over 400 parts per million. So let's say I'm off by two or three, okay? Mm -hmm. Now you're only a couple of thousand parts and not me, but that's what the data would show. So it still says it was a lot more 600 million years ago. Then it goes through cycles of that, you know, it gets down to 3,000 and on and on. Same thing with the temperature. It's, it's like in 150 million year cycles, okay, where this is going. So I make that point. Next thing I do is, is talk about temperatures on the earth are caused primarily by the sun. Mm -hmm. And, and I, the way I make that point is Jim and I are simple-minded mechanical engineers. The earth is, a, earth is a big blob, okay, out in space. And there's this hot energy source, the sun. The earth is getting its energy only from the sun, my contention. It's not generating it. Oh, there's a little bit of decay stuff and here and a volcano or then, but that's minuscule compared to what the sun does. Mm -hmm. So then Milakovich right. cycles, okay, where the, the earth, earth is going around the sun in elliptical pattern about every 100,000 years, okay? That ellipse is tilting relative to the sun every 40,000 years, okay? The earth is spinning about its axis. The earth is wobbling about its spinning axis, okay? So therefore, the orientation of the earth relative to the sun in different parts of the earth relative to the sun is varying all the time. So right. when you consider that and you look at the cycles, there's a correlation between solar activities in the orbits, okay, that corresponds to the changes in temperature of the Earth. So that's that's what that point is. My next point to the to the audience is the amount of carbon dioxide produced by humans in the atmosphere is extremely low. Okay, it's one tenth of one percent of the atmosphere. Wow. That's that's how much carbon dioxide is produced by humans. Okay. So if I, if I model the atmosphere with 10,000 particles, 300 of those particles would be carbon dioxide. 12 of those particles would be produced by humans. So it's such a minuscule amount. In my mechanical judgment, how can, how can that few molecules of anything be a, a solar screen, okay, or a solar collector or a greenhouse effect it has any significant effect on the earth. Yeah, good point. My next yeah. point is 97% of the scientists agree. Okay. So I showed data on that where in 2013, Professor Cook, Dr. Cook, whatever his title was from Australia, looked at 12,000 
technical papers on climate change and carbon dioxide produced by humans. And he said 97% of the scientists agree humans are causing that. Well, if you look two years after that, another group of scientists looked at those same 12,000 papers in a more critical fashion, in a more level-minded fashion, okay, and found out that only 0.3%, okay, were actually said humans caused it. Another, you know, four-tenths of a percent said that they thought humans could have some effect. So oh, we've gone wow. from... We've gone from 97% to seven, you know, less than 1% really said it. So again, presenting those facts. And then carbon dioxide, my last point is, is that, uh, no, second to last point is carbon dioxide is not causing weather changes. So I go through EPA data, NOAA data, and everything else, show the frequency of hurricanes, tornadoes, drought, and floods and it does not, it varies up and down, but the average, it's not changing as carbon dioxide changes. Mm -hmm. And then my last point is carbon dioxide is not a pollutant. Jim and I talked about space station. Space station astronauts are breathing 5,000 parts per million right now, okay, 24-7. Navy sailors and submarines breathe 8,000 parts per million wow. continuously, okay? We breathe in 400 parts per million plus. We exhale 40,000 parts per million. So when you give CPR mouth-to-mouth -to, -mouth to somebody, you're pumping 40,000 parts per million of carbon dioxide into their lungs. Well, it usually saves their life, okay, by doing that. So, you know, it's, it's carbon dioxide is not a pollutant. And one other thing I do to make that point is, is look at the growth of trees and vegetables and plants. When, when you double the amount of carbon dioxide, they flourish. Trees increase their, their generation of leaves by 70% and overall vegetables by about 40%. So increasing carbon dioxide and holding everything else constant is, uh, is nothing but good for for plants. Yeah. So sure. then I, then I rest my case. Yeah. So that's, that's really wonderful. I love the fact that you're focused on real data because people can actually understand that a lot better than these computer models. And, and, you know, Tom, I have a question for you. And that is because of the fact that the data does not match their models, they don't want to talk about the data. You know, it, it strikes me that that is a point you've got to hit on really hard because the climate scare is based on the forecasts of models that don't work. And do people find that kind of interesting? Well, over, overlaid with some of the cyclical data on temperature and things like that, we overlay that with, with the analytical prediction. And there's no way, I mean, it just goes up very, very quickly by analysis, whereas actually based on data, it doesn't. I'll add, add one other thing that Al Gore just said at the economic summit, okay? Uh -huh. And that he said that the earth is, is heating, okay, because of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, equivalent to 600,000 atomic bombs equivalent to Hiroshima every single day, and we're mm. boiling the ocean. Well, I, I make that statement in my presentations, 
and I show the ocean temperature as measured by 3,000 buoys all over the world, okay? And mm -hmm. it doesn't go up at all. It varies, okay? But <laughs> yeah. the average is it's staying flat, so, you know. Yeah. You, you almost wonder if, if, like, laughter is maybe an appropriate response to some of these things because it's so ridiculous. It, I mean, if we, if we get people laughing at it, I mean, surely that would be a positive thing for our side. Correct. Well, and there, there are a lot of chuckles. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. You know, it's interesting. Greenpeace came to my door and they were collecting money to stop global warming. So I asked <laughs> them, I said, well, will you stop the next ice age, please? Because we're actually, uh, you know, much closer to the beginning of the next glacial period than we are to any serious global warming. And they just kind of looked at me like, uh, <laughs> what I was talking about. So changing gears here a little bit. When I was in the Canadian Air Force, I attended a fascinating presentation from Apollo 15 astronaut, Colonel Jim Irwin. And I spoke with Colonel Irwin and shook his hand, which is a great honor. He even signed that famous picture of him saluting the flag on the moon. So Jim, when you worked on Apollo 15, you must have known Colonel Irwin. Could you tell us a little about him? What was he like? Uh, yes, I got to know him uh, really well. Uh, one of the things that we uh, did, I, I was, uh, part of my job was to train the astronauts, to help train the astronauts for their excursions on the, on the moon. Wow. Uh, they had a uh, geologist assigned to them, and uh, we went out occasionally to uh, New Mexico and Nevada and uh, walked up and down the mountains, and uh, the geologist showed them which rocks were the ones that we wanted to pick up and which ones uh, weren't all that useful. And uh, we uh, got to know... Uh, each other pretty well, and uh, I just really enjoyed the uh, the time that I had to spend with these people. Yeah, he sounds like he, you know, he seemed to me like a, quite a a humble person. You know, he, he was just talking to him. He was you'd never guess that he'd walked on the moon. <laughs> yeah, that's the way all these guys were. Uh, mm -hmm. So when, when you actually worked with him, did you see his Christian side or did that come later after he was on the moon? Actually, that came a little later when he became to be known about his uh, ideas there. I invited him to uh, come to our church and give his personal testimony. Yeah. Which he, he did and he, was, he did it very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a brave character as well. I mean, all of them were brave. But when I met him, he'd already had two heart attacks. And here he was up in Canada giving public speaking. So, you know, he is obviously a very brave guy. And didn't he find the Genesis rock? Uh, I know what you're talking about. Dave Scott was uh, the commander on that mission with him. Mm -hmm. And I do remember him being excited about finding the Genesis rock. He, yeah, he announced that from the moon. Yeah, for sure. You know, one thing I find interesting is that he actually, Jim Irwin, apparently had heart troubles on the moon. And Dr. Barry, who was the Apollo mission doctor, did you know Dr. Barry, by the way? Yes, I did. Oh, yeah. He was Canadian, by the way. <laughs> I'm happy to say. <laughs> you know, we but, had a number of Canadians. In fact, my, the division chief was uh, from Canada. We, 
we had about 25 or so Canadians that worked with me in the engineering area. Oh, that's cool. Well, I heard that Jim Irwin actually had serious health troubles on the moon. But Dr. Barry said, well, he's in one-sixth gravity, breathing very highly concentrated oxygen atmosphere. And so I would put him in an ICU if he was here on Earth, but he's sort of in an ICU right now, (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was interesting. Of course, there wasn't much they could do about it because he was on the moon. (laughs) It's a shame he didn't live longer because uh, he was a, a pretty nice guy. You know, one thing I noticed is that on his tombstone in the Arlington National Cemetery, they don't make any mention about Apollo 15. They talk about his campaigns in Vietnam and Korea and his Air Force colonel status. Uh, It's interesting. Why wouldn't they put Apollo 15 on the tombstone? I don't have any idea. Yeah, it's strange, eh? But regardless, uh, so Tom, shifting over to you, I remember the first discussions of space station freedom during President Ronald Reagan's administration. And just as an aside, my wife and I went out to greet President Reagan when he came to uh, Ottawa. We held up big signs that had a Canadian and American flag. It said, friends in freedom. And you'd laugh to hear that the media totally ignored us, even though my wife is very pretty and she was holding up the sign. And they only filmed the protesters. <laughs> but in fact, there were a lot of people there welcoming President Reagan. Certainly, I saw him through the, you know, through the side of his limousine. So I don't know. You, did you get the impression that Canadians were all protesting? <laughs> Well, I, I didn't know about the, the protests, and I was uh, I was in Washington at the time when before there was a space station program, and I was named program director before there was a space station program. Oh wow! And so, you know, a bunch of us throughout NASA, Johnson Space Center, Marshall, on and on and on, had done a lot of studies on different space station configurations. And we had to fit it within a budget. You know, it was alleged to Reagan that this thing was going to cost $7 billion to develop, okay, and produce. And as we got into it and really sharpened our pencil and knew more about what it was, it was $15 billion. Mm-hmm. Well, so we had to convince Reagan, President Reagan, and the Congress that it was worth building a space station for $15 billion. And a lot of members of the Congress Appropriations Committee said, we, you know, that, that would never be approved. We weren't going to do it. And our biggest argument for why the United States needed to do it is because the Russians were in space with the space station and had been there continuously for a long time. And the United States was not. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like back to the moon race, except this was a space station that anyway... It was, it was approved. Reagan didn't like it, okay, because it was $15 billion. But then when you compared in those days, in those year dollars, $15 billion was compared to shuttle, which was $30 billion, which compared to Apollo, which was $75 billion. So it was really not a really big program. And uh, Space Station really didn't have a technology development challenge, okay? It was more of a processing operations logistics problem than it was really a technological problem. So, um, well, it got approved, okay? And it was called Space Station Freedom when it was originally 
developed, I mean, really originally approved, but then it was changed to International Space Station. But, but with Space Station Freedom, we had 11 countries involved in the, in the program and all quid pro pro, no funds changed between one country and another. So it was, uh, it was a big sell, okay, to get that program approved. Mm-hmm. Now, did Space Station Freedom morph into International Space Station or did it end and then a new project started? It, to- the name changed, is it? Oh, is that all? That's all. It evolved as far as capability and size and what the configuration was. As a matter of fact, you know, originally it was really simple, you know, three or four modules on it. And then as more partners came in and more requirements came along, it, it, grow, it grew. Also, the power was limited, I think, to 75 kilowatts. I mean, 45 kilowatts initially because that's what the deputy NASA administrator cut a deal with one of the congressional staffers in a, in a, in over a desk beer or whatever. Okay. Yeah. So we'll keep it to that. Well, we knew that wasn't enough. So we, we grew it to 75 kilowatts when that deputy administrator was gone, but, uh, but it was always the same program. The program never changed it. The name changed and the yeah. scope, the scope changed somewhat. When you look back, do you consider the space station, generally speaking, a success? In some ways, yes. In some ways, to be determined. Mm. The thing I say yes is we've learned how to live and operate continuously in space. And one of the challenges that um, when I was program director tried to instill in everybody, we're not just building a space station to be there for a short period of time. Everything that's going to go in that space station has to be looked at from a system standpoint. I don't care if it's a little black box that was measuring the weight of something. The idea was that black box going to be designed to be replaced. If so, it takes shuttle activity to get it there. It takes astronaut activity. Or is it designed to last the lifetime of the space station? Or is it designed to be repaired? So mm-hmm. we had to think about every single thing. Well, I think space station has been a forerunner. Uh, at first, it didn't do a good job of what I just said, but I think it's there and it's operating operating fine. Space station is nothing more, it's not any more complicated than a zero gravity laboratory, period. Mm-hmm. And so when I, we were trying to sell Congress on the idea of the space station, they kept wanting to know, what's the return on investment? What's the return on investment? And I said, Congressman, I said, I'm not smart enough, nor are you, okay? Probably not a smart thing to say, but I did. I said, because we don't know what will come out of a laboratory in space. And and everything we've gotten, the benefits in space have been serendipity, primarily, from everything you can think of. I mean, everybody in the United States benefits from space every single day. We didn't plan that in 1957 when we said, "Let's, let's put something in space like the Russians have, but it's paid off. I said, mm-hmm. so if I were investing in somebody that gave that kind of return on investment, I'd keep investing in it. And I said, Congressman, if it doesn't pay out to be effective, deep six the thing in the Pacific Ocean, you know, but give it a chance. Let's see yeah. what we learn. I don't know what we've learned on Space Station. Tell you the truth. I imagine there's been a lot, but people say ho-hum, you know, but yeah. I imagine there's been a lot learned on it. Yeah. When you look at the 
plans of Elon Musk. He keeps talking about being on Mars with people in 2030. And it's interesting that the Canadian astronaut, Chris Hadfield, he says, sure, we can be on Mars in 2030, but they'd all be dead. <laughs> so, I mean, who do you think is being more realistic? Uh, by 2030, I don't know. Uh, I think that's, that's a real push. I'm not going to bet against Elon Musk, okay? <laughs> yeah. Because I was with a group of guys that we competed against him to deliver supplies to the space station, and he beat us badly, okay? Mm. Uh, the thing is, it primed his pump to do what he's doing in launching vehicles at one-tenth the cost of Boeing and, and Lockheed. One-tenth, not 10% less, one-tenth. So, wow. therefore, I mean, he did some things that I was amazed about. I think if he does it, he'll, he'll figure out how to leverage the private sector and the government, the United States government, and probably international partners mm -hmm. to do it, I would suspect. Yeah. I, just to end off, I had a sort of fun question completely off the wall. What do you think of the idea that there are extraterrestrials somewhere in the universe and that they might actually have visited humans at some point in the past? Do you think any of that has validity or do you think we're alone in the universe? I'll let Jim answer that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's hard for me to believe it's true and it's hard for me to believe that it's not true. The guy, Tom, that said uh, trillions and trillions of the stars. What was that uh, gas thing? That... Carl Sagan? Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. And, uh, and that's true. I mean, uh, it, it seems like it would be impossible for there to not be some sort of a replication to, to what we have. And I've got the notion that if there is, Maybe they're further advanced uh, <laughs> on their technology than we are, and they could uh, zip over here and check us out and zip back without anyone knowing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's fun to think I, about. And as I said, I, I'm wearing my Star Trek shirt here, so I'm the space yeah. cadet. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, so, I think I'm leaning towards uh, that, you know, there's no other life. I don't, I don't know why I should believe that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Arthur C. Clarke had an interesting statement. I'd like to hear what you think. He was saying that he thought that the common ingredient among intelligent life in the universe was loneliness because they would never encounter any others when those species were alive. And, and the, the reason is, he thought, not just because of the distance, but because they'd have to be technologically advanced at the same time. They'd have hmm. to overlap in time. Because if you think about it, I mean, 250,000 years ago was Cro-Magnon. So we've not really been around very long in the age of the universe. And Clark believed, despite all his science fiction writing, that the chances we overlapped with another civilization mm -hmm. in the same time was very slim. Do you think that makes sense, Tom? I think it makes sense. And and I'm, I'm going to be like Jim. i you know, I, I believe and I don't believe both. And the jury's still out. Uh, I don't I don't believe people have come to Earth and grabbed people up and put them in their spacecraft and left. I don't believe that. But does mm -hmm. some other kind of life form exist uh, out there? It'd be a, hard to believe that it didn't, okay? I hadn't thought about the, the time frame overlap, time domain mm -hmm. overlap. I think it's very interesting. That's probably another dimension that says 
we probably haven't encountered anybody and probably won't encounter anybody. Yeah. Well, to me, it's a little like walking down the beach and picking up one grain of sand and seeing bacteria on it and saying without knowing what's on the beach, that that's the only grain of sand with bacteria on. Surely it would just seem pretty improbable that out of the hundreds of billions of stars in our own galaxy, Uh and you know, we're finding planets everywhere. Um, And in fact, with this, within this new extremely large telescope, they're going to build soon. They say they'll be able to optically detect earth sized planets. So, you know, that will be pretty awesome. Correct. Correct. Yeah. For sure. Well, we've got to wrap up. This has been fun talking to two of the main players in the right climate stuff. My first guest, of course, was Jim Peacock. He's a former NASA mechanical engineer, and he's currently the chairman of the right climate stuff. My other guest was NASA mechanical engineer Tom Moser, the originator of the right stuff. And both of these guys were Apollo veterans, which was, of course, my upbringing. I was 16 when they landed on the moon, which was the reason I became an aerospace engineer. More on the aero side. I wasn't on the space side. (laughs) So thanks so much for being on my show, Jim and Tom. Our pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. Okay, so this is Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.